executive director of the Women in Public Service Project. And she's the brains behind the creation of a massive database that's designed to more accurately measure and account for the number of women in public service jobs. We're talking to Gwen today not just about women in elected office, but also about women in judgeships and in civil service positions, among many others. We're going to talk to Gwen about why this is so important. Gwen is a lawyer and a policy expert, and her career has taken her from conflict zones in Africa, where she trained women to develop advocacy, networking, and management skills, all the way to the halls of academia and to an, a, a diverse array of non-governmental organizations or NGOs, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. We'll talk to Gwen about how these various jobs and experiences have informed her journey and have actually led her to this point. Gwen, welcome. We are so delighted to have you on She Said, She Said. Wonderful to be here, Laura. Thank you so much. Absolutely. So let's start with the Women in Public Service Project. A big part of this, although not all of it, but a big part of it is focused on data. And as I understand it, that's been an evolution. Can you talk about sort of how the Women in Public Service Project started and how you arrived at this notion of why data collection is so important in this area? Absolutely. So the Women in Public Service Project started in 2011, and it came out of the State Department in the United States in cooperation with five of the seven sisters colleges in the US. But it came out of the notion of looking around the tables of government in the United States and saying, why am I the only woman here? Why aren't there more women at the table? And so when it started, it came over to the Wilson Center at the beginning of 2012. And it started as a global project by training women globally to, in leadership, and to go into office, and not just elected office, but sort of government offices. So what it would do in its, its pr premier phase, or in its first phase, was to bring them together and train them in leadership skills or subject matter areas, global health, the role of water in the world. So it was always global. Um, but what we realized quite quickly is that um, it was going to be very hard to scale and grow. And that there were also a lot of other really great organizations that were training women as well and doing it very well globally. Mm -hmm. Here in the United States, we know groups like Running Start. Mm -hmm. Overseas, we know groups like NDI and IRI that are doing it in the political space. So I took over the project in August of 2015. And we spent a fair amount of time you know, looking at where could we complement, where could we fit, and really also looking at where we were in 2015 sort of saying, okay, we've been told to lean in, we've been trained, what else is holding us back? Despite all of this, women still haven't broken 20% in Congress. They still haven't broken 12% of CEOs in the United States. Like, what is it? So we said, let's look at institutions and systems. And what's the way you're going to drive that change? And what's the way we're going to innovate? Like, what is the new things we need to do, knowing there probably isn't a silver bullet? So we said data. Mm -hmm. If we actually know where women are, we know how they got there, and then we can measure how we where we're going to go, right? So we said, let's use the data, but let's really look at how we're going to change institutions and systems. And so it was this iterative process of saying, if we want to change the structures, we want to change the policies, we're going to need the data first to say where women are. And, and we know this, you know, the irony is we know this. McKinsey published a report in 2016 that said if women are employed equally as men in the workforce, GDP globally grows between 12 and $28 trillion dollars. These are the evidence base, but what we need now is the action of understanding what does that mean 
you know, what are the numbers looking like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about power centers, that, that a component of this related to data is also understanding power centers. Elaborate for our listeners on what you mean by that. So, you know, one thing that's really important, and I think we all know this in, in, in the lives that we lead every day, right? It's not enough to just hold the seat. So it's not enough to have 50% of women in Congress or to have 50% of the judiciary be women. They actually have to be able to, to drive decisions, drive agendas, make decisions, have influence. So we said we really need to look at the power. In the political science research, there's sort of four levels of representation. And one of them is descriptive, which is simply you hold this seat. But really comes important is what can you do with that seat? You know, can you draft legislation? Can you veto legislation? Can you can you set the agenda? Are you in the room when the decision is made? And so we said we really need to look at that because it often happens in many administrations across the globe. So I don't want to focus on one or the other to appear partisan, mm-hmm. right? But that women will hold a seat or be a minister, but they often won't be in the room making the decision about an important policy for their country. Mm-hmm. And it happens in the private sector a lot too. The decision is made by somebody else. You missed the meeting. You weren't invited to the meeting. Your memo wasn't read. And that's, that's unacceptable because that reflects unconscious bias and perception. It also reflects where we want women to sit. You know, we want them everywhere in the government. We call it the glass walls. We want them in finance, in infrastructure, in the economy, and not just in health and education where they've traditionally sat. Doing this on a global basis is not without its challenges, I'm sure. So how, how do you start with a project like this? How do, you, how do you establish the baseline so that you know what you have and where you're mm-hmm. going? First way we do that is by partnership. So just in terms of the data specifically, so we are not... of the time, we are not collecting our data. We're using the data of groups like the World Bank, United Nations, European Commission, the OECD. Using data that's, that's publicly available, and if not, making it publicly available, and having those partnerships. So it's built off a partnership. It also is built off the partnerships with the governments themselves, agencies within the government, or generally sort of nonprofits or universities in particular countries that have an interest in looking at this. I lived in Senegal for the previous five years before I took over this position. The University Sheikh Gantajop in Senegal has a gender lab. Hmm. It had surveyed the Senegalese government in terms of where women are. So we partnered with them, not just on the data, but in looking at the analysis piece. And, and it is a challenge globally, as we know, because not every region is going to be the same. Not every country is going to be the same in how they're going to get to parity. It's going to be a different mixture that's going to take into consideration not only their policies and structures, but their culture and so forth. And so in some ways, it's a, it's a huge task to try to change every single country in the globe. Mm-hmm. But in terms of getting the data in a framework, that's something that can be useful to every country. And whoever is in that country can figure out how they need to use it, which levers they need to move to get to parity. Partnerships can be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you, you would know even better than I. Uh, t- talk to me about, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense when the partnership works, but how do, you, how do you approach this? How do you get another organization that may um, be very proprietary with their, with their data, with their intellectual property, this kind of thing? How, how do you develop those partnerships? Well, I think like many things, one of the factors is trust, right? So it takes a lot of time to get to know the people or to get to know the persons that you're going to work with, right? So part of it is is trust and personal relationships. You hear stories in negotiations. Um, Baroness Catherine Ashton, who was part of a negotiating the Iran deal, said she always has dinner the night before with everybody in the negotiation, where they're not talking about the negotiation, they're just talking about personal stuff. 
And that allows them when they go in the room the next day to have a little bit of a rapport. Mm -hmm. You know, before you go on stage, it's nice to sit with the other speakers for 10 or 15 minutes and then go on stage because you just feel a little bit more comfortable. So part of it is that trust and comfort. But the second thing is, it's really interesting, I think, in the women's space, is in that a lot of people are excited as we see what's happening across the United States, whether it's elected office, Me Too, or Time Is Up. Um, but people are a little frustrated in why things aren't working. We've been talking about this forever. Why haven't we broken the 20% barrier in Congress? Um, so people are looking for innovative solutions. And so I think saying this is a win-win for both of us. This is an innovative and the nice part about where we are is we are the first data platform and index that covers all five sectors of government. So it's different than what anybody else has done. Mm -hmm. And so we can say we're complementary and we can help raise your visibility. So you can keep doing what you're doing really well, but do it with us and we can raise that. And I also think in the past 10 years, we've come to an acceptance that that data should be open and accessible. Mm -hmm. And so I think our value proposition is we want to work with you and we want to make it open and accessible so that people can download it and use it. That becomes you know, mutually beneficial to everybody. Mm -hmm. And so we're stepping in and saying, we just want to work with you and be a part of what you want to do. So I think it's the trust. I think it's the collaboration. I think it's the, the showing the value to them, but also to sort of the broader space. I want to backtrack on something that you just said, just for clarity, because I think it's important. And, and that is the data is looking at five sectors of government. T talk to us about what you mean by the five sectors. Yeah. So we've got the five sectors of government. So we've got the executive branch, the legislative branch, the judiciary, national security, and the civil service. And what you'll see a lot when you talk about women's empowerment or empowerment generally, I I've mentioned it several times myself, you talk about Congress or Parliament, elected office. Mm -hmm. But yet the civil service, you know, the civil servants and the agencies here in the U.S. drive a lot of our GDP growth, employ a fair amount of people. But we're also talking about national and local. So women in police forces, mm -hmm. you know, not just women in the military, which is incredibly important, but women in police forces, city commissioners, judges, attorney generals, things that we haven't looked at. And what's interesting, going back to some of the challenges, it's not its not just globally that this is a challenge. There is no one central database disaggregated by sex for women in the judiciary in the United States, right? All of these women that want to run for office this year, we don't even know how many seats. I saw one figure today that said there's 514,000 seats open in the United States. Meaning everything from city council and school yep. board all the way All to the way up to president of the United States. Um, yet when you sit in these group of experts, we all sit around and say, we don't know exactly, wouldn't it be wonderful if, what we don't know, where do I send these women? So part of this is capturing this data to know really where they are. you know. And there's an assumption, I think, that women are at the local level. And our index is showing that globally across 75 countries, there are more women at a local level. The next question is, will they go to the national or do they want to stay local? What's that relationship? But, um, but yeah, we want to look at all sectors of government because it's not everybody wants to be president. Not everybody wants to run for elected office. And that's not the only place that you can make change, mm -hmm. right? And there's a lot of other places that you can make change and implement legislation or, you know, rule on policies in, in people's lives as a judge. I'm a lawyer, so I get compassionate about, about the legal profession. So we really wanted to look at all of those. And that was a space that no one else was looking at as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So let, let's take a step back and let's talk a bit about the challenges still facing women, whether we're talking about in public service type roles, in elected office, or whether we're talking about the C-suite and executive level jobs. 
Um, we've talked a bit, uh, quite a bit, in fact, on this podcast about a number of these factors, especially as it relates to women um, running for office and what holds them back in this context. But, but you're looking at uh, a much more diverse um, range of jobs, right? It's mm-hmm. not just women running for office. It's other types of jobs and positions as well. So what are you finding um, and especially on a global basis, because I would think that there would be a big difference between, potentially, between what you find in the U.S. and what you find elsewhere around the world, given the number of countries that you're looking at. So talk about what you're, what you're seeing. In two minutes or less. Yeah, well, that's a big question. <laughs> yeah. No, but I'm seeing things in two categories. One is behaviors and one is policies. So one of the things when I say behaviors is I talked earlier about unconscious bias or perception matters, right? So what we're finding globally in the index, for example, is that in a place like Slovenia, where 72% of the population believe and perceive that women have a right to work out of the home, that women and men have equal opportunity, that should have equal opportunity. In Slovenia, women are doing very well in terms of gender equality. They're 50% in the defense ministry. They're 50% in the finance. They're in education. They're rising high. So that that perception matters, right? That, that unconscious bias, how people treat and behave with women matters. The second thing in terms of the behaviors is the networks. So whether it's sort of the old boys network, as we call it in the United States, or globally in Asia and Latin America, it's a family network. Breaking through a network, whether that's elected office or whether that's civil service, is still the key to getting in a job. And I think that's what happens in the private sector getting on board. You know, you sort of look between, I need a great new CFO, and somebody that you know says, I know a great CFO. And that, which is great, but it also means it stays within your network. Mm-hmm. And you're not going outside of your network to find that candidate who may look different, have different skill sets, or just may be there looking very similar. They just don't happen to be part of your network. So the networks is part of it. Um, and so that those two things, I think, are universal. You can call culture and religion differently, but in reality, it still comes down to the same things about perception and about sort of just behaviors, you know, how people behave. And what we do find in, in the index is that, you know, if you're, if you're treating boys and girls equally, they're receiving equal levels of education and you're talking to them equally, they're doing, women are doing better in terms of women's leadership. Um, the second piece in sort of what the challenges are, are, are simply in some of the policies. You know, a policy in a company, for example, or even in a government that says you're going to be promoted if you've worked X amount of years, you know, is often, that is not gender blind necessarily. Because if you take time off, whether it's to have a child or whether it's for elder care for whatever reason, then you have less time in the workforce. And so you're, it's counted less. And that is clearly gender bias. Your earnings, your past earnings as a measure of what you will earn or whether you will go up can also be gender, not be gender blind. So in other words, there are these specific policies put into place. But what we do find across the globe is affirmative policies, whether they're quotas or other policies that say Macedonia has one that says um, 30% of the underrepresented party must be on the ballot and must be on a candidate for a pointed list. Mm. So they don't say men or women, but they say 30% of the underrepresented. So affirmative policies matter. We don't do those affirmative policies in the U.S. on a grand scale. Certain parties may do them. The Republican Party actually started some of the affirmative policies for women way back when. Now it's sort of the trends have switched. You know, Democratic Party of Maryland is using some right now. So the policies still do matter. In, in this case. And so I think, you know, some of the challenges are the policies and some of the challenges are the behaviors. In thinking about the behaviors, we talk a lot about confidence, mm-hmm. where confidence mm-hmm. comes from, 
um, how you can essentially get in front of where the confidence gap can yep. occur, especially with tween girls. Um, Claire Shipman and Caddy Kay have written uh, a revised version of their great book, The Confidence Code. We're going to talk great. to Claire oh, in a week or so um, about this book and why it was so important to highlight younger girls. But let's talk about that, um, the investment and the awareness around the fact that confidence can fall off more considerably for women than for men in some cases. And I think it's a, and I think it plays out a couple different ways, right? I think when you're when you're in the workforce, the confidence can prohibit you from applying for a job that you would normally apply for. It can prohibit you from negotiating, or prohibit you often from asking why. You know, why didn't I get that promotion? Why didn't I move up? Why am I not at the table? I mean, the, the studies still show that women look at a job description in government or in the private sector across the board, and they, they say, I, if I don't have all these qualities, I'm not necessarily going to get there. And that goes back to, I mean, you can call that confidence or you can call it the quest for perfection, mm-hmm. you know, but I think I think it's an interplay, interplay of the two. I think going back to your question about behaviors, I also think it's how women present themselves. You know, in elected office, we talk about it a lot more in terms of campaigns and politics how shrill, you know, how strong, how loud, how vocal, right? But the same things happen in the civil service and whatever is, you know, she's too vocal, she's too strong. You know, at the same time, I do think that that the tide is changing and we're starting to realize some of that. And so what I say to people is have the confidence to speak up, figure out the tenor of the room, but make sure that you do speak up and bring up your expertise. You know, but that plays a lot. I mean, the, the government's a lot like the private sector. You might write this great and fantastic memo and somebody may not simply read it mm-hmm. because you didn't speak up. They may not read it for political reasons. They may not read it because they're busy. And so unless you sort of take that next step. Um, and sort of learn to package yourself. And sort right? of learn to package yourself. And I think um, I want to touch on another thing that's not related to conference, but when you brought up the girls and the, the behaviors is mm-hmm. also, I don't think people think government's very exciting to work for, frankly. And so one of the things we would like to do, and a partner of ours in Berlin works really good on, is making government an exciting place to work. I think women look at politics and say, if they're going to critique how I look and how I dress and how I talk, if they're going to bring my family under a limelight, you know, this is exhausting. I don't want to do that. Um, Or they look at government and think, it's just, it takes so long to get things done. It's not exciting. It's not innovative. And at the same time, you think about certain administrations started digital service teams. They brought in people from Google to sort of digitize. What an interesting job to digitize the government or to make the Department of Veteran Affairs work better through technology. That is a fascinating job. And so I think we need to bring a little bit of that story back that it is in an exciting and great place to work. How do you do that? By showing examples okay. of what government's doing that is innovative. You know, by trying to show that it's innovative. I mean, I think you do that in the same way that the tech sector is going to have to show this is a great place to work and re-respect diversity. Mm-hmm. I think you have to take the policies and measures to, to show that you're willing to, you know, hire women, promote women, and be supportive. But the, the way I think you're going to get the excitement back in government, too, is by showing there are innovative things that happen. You know, and reminding people a little bit like we're trying to remind people, government is not only elected office. It still controls a large portion of a GDP in a country. In other words, you can have an influence. And and making sure that people can see that the government can make changes. A lot of us sit here in the U.S. under whatever administration go, it's going to be another four years of the same thing and nothing's going to change. Or we hear the administration say we're going to change this and we're like, yeah, but that won't happen for another three years. Does this require starting earlier 
to go into schools and talk to young people who are well before they enter their career, before they're making yeah. career decisions, to educate them about the role that governments play. Absolutely. And what so one thing we're doing is we're at the high school level in Kenya and Rwanda, and we run a mentorship with girls in high school. It's called Girls Guiding Government. And so we're saying, here's some leadership training and get excited about government. What I'm finding with some other partners like Running Start and NDI is also we're thinking you actually need to start sooner than that. You really need to start middle school. In terms of equality and women's confidence, you need to start really young, you know, four or five years old. My, my examples are, you know, various countries I've lived in in Africa, the, the father often doesn't eat with the family. The kids often eat with the nanny or the kids eat with the mom. The dad eats first or later or he eats, you know, with the mother after the kids have gone to bed, that kind of setup. But, you know, what's important is that the family sits together, that you talk about your jobs together, that you see what your father does, that he says to the girls and the boys, you can do this. You know, you want to do this, study this, you can have this job. That that has to start when you're four or five, you know, at that age, four or five, six years old. That confidence has to come then because what we're seeing is children that arrive into high school have already sort of predisposed to both confidence and to what they want to do. So both in terms of government and in terms of confidence, girls have to, you know, start young. And I also believe that all kids have to start exploring all kinds of opportunities, whether it's sports, whether it's boys doing dishes at the house, whether it's boys babysitting, you know, really explore all of them. Because when you're young, you have you don't have the filters and you haven't been socialized yet. And so you need to experience all that because once you're 18 or 19, you are socialized. And it's not that you can't build up that confidence or build up a new career idea. It's just that it takes longer and it's harder. So you've set a very ambitious goal for reaching 50% representation of women by the year 2050. Very ambitious. Do you think when you get to that point that structural reforms will still be needed as well? Or do you think the problem will be solved? That is a very good question. I think that the problem will not be solved, to start with the second part of your question, because I think the question we will have in 2050, if we get there, is who are these 50%, right? In other words, we're not one group of women. And that's not just broken down by party, but it's broken down potentially by ethnicity and you know, socioeconomic group and so forth. So we'll have to ask, are these, are these 50% women there still representing what is going on in our country because one of the things that government has is you want your government to look like the people it represents sort of the jury concept you know jury of your peers meaning it should come from all economic levels it should come from all races and ethnicities so i think i don't think we'll be there because i think there's always going to be behavior changes and prejudices and bias and things that we're going to have to look at but i think in terms of that we'll have to look at at who's there and is our government as representative as possible i think we there will be structural changes getting up there and there may need to still be structural changes to make sure that we we are we are hiring and promoting on merit right and not based on unconscious bias and so forth i think also to make sure that and this is one thing i say we're not trying to make women be the leaders of the universe and be the 100 percent at the table right we chose parity because we are 50 percent of the population so let's assume we're 50 percent of the population in 2050 but we want to make sure that that we keep that that we keep that representation and we keep that notion of parity. So are the policies in place that will that will make that happen? There, there are studies that show if you have 30% representation that you've sort of gotten over a hump and it, you know, it's all going to be sort of downhill from there. I think that's true, but I think if you look at history, you can go back very quickly 
in terms of types of government or in terms of types of representation. So I don't want to get too deep and philosophical, um, but I still think there'll be structural forms. I think, you know, one of the debates in the U.S. will be interesting is right now in terms of electing people. One of our colleagues is always saying, you know, we want more proportional representation. The electoral college is not working. And, and we may go back to proportional representation and get to 2050 and say, maybe there's a better way. So I think there's sort of always a need for some sort of structural reform. But I would think by the time we get there, you look at countries like a Sweden or a Finland and Denmark who've sort of gotten there in terms of gender equality in government and, and sort of happiness and equality indicators. But I think they're always innovating in what they need to do. Let's talk a bit about your work in Africa, which is so fascinating. And how did those, how did those experiences inform the work that you're doing now? I think a couple of things. I mean, one thing I saw very vividly in Africa that I, I didn't see as clearly in the United States where I'm from was I saw, you know, strong, resilient women, and I saw that they were actually leading communities. So I, I worked in a, a fair amount of war zones, and what I noticed is while a lot of men were, were off fighting or out fighting for all day, the women were running the communities. The women were making decisions. There were informal structures that were set up and in some cases formal. Then I often saw on a, you know, another not great argument is that once a peace process was put into place, the women were sort of left by the side, right? But yet they had run the community for 20 years. Um, and the other thing I saw is that it doesn't take much for women to be leaders. So, you know, I worked with women in Africa who, who couldn't read or write but we could teach them basic accounting skills. And with that, they could run a, a carité value chain. You know, they could sell their lettuce and their onions and, and quadruple their income in a very short period of time. They knew how to work with associations. They also knew how to build an association and get a community of people within their community to build a small business. And so in other words, they didn't have to go through 15 years of formal education. And I really came to appreciate the value of kind of just being smart and vocational training and the value of will you know, in to be able to do that. Um, and so I I just really saw these opportunities and I also saw that it's not that hard. It's not like you had to lift the entire country, the entire continent out of poverty and put a million great universities across the country and pour in a million dollars. It was, you had to give people going back the confidence and the will and some basic skills and some basic concepts and and you could make things happen. And so um, I think that's what led me to where I am today. And I think, you know, one of the things while I'm at a think tank and there's this data platform and we're talking a lot about advocacy, you know, the challenge is being global. But I don't want to forget that every country, you know, what can we do on a country by country, community by community basis? And that's sort of my biggest challenge is there's three of us here, you know, and we're not we can't be everywhere. But if we can inspire and have partnerships, hopefully that can be everywhere, we can actually drive that. Is that what success looks like for you as you think about this? Not just the goal of 50% by 2050, but for you personally, what, what does success look like? For me personally, I, I think what success looks like is, is maybe two things. This is a hard question, right? I think success looks like, you know, women in a community, probably somebody where, somewhere where I live, let's say Senegal, where I see a women rise up to the head of the defense ministry in Senegal, right? And and that would be success, like physically seeing specific women being able to rise up and have positions. But success for me also really looks like whether we're at 50% or not, that the notion of equal opportunity is being discussed and, and aimed for. So that both in trying to put in place laws, because it's hard 
to put in gender blind. But if there is equal opportunity, at least on the face of the law, and people are talking about it in a society and saying this is an important value for us, mm-hmm. that would be success. You know, if we can stop this win-lose or women's leadership is better than men's leadership or men's leadership is better than women, that's actually really not the issue. I want equal opportunity. I want to know that this young girl at four that says I want to be an astronaut knows that she can do that if she, you know, fulfills certain criteria and studies the right way and does the right things. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a little bit intangible, but I, I guess I look at if if I feel like a country or somewhere where I live or a company has made really concrete steps to do some gender blind and some really neutral policies and the dialogue that's going on in society is about equal opportunity. That's what success feels like, I think. So, Gwen, your career has taken a number of different twists and turns, right? You started in the law, you've, you've, you've evolved and evolved and evolved. Those transitions can be tough for people at times. How, how have you known when it was time to pivot, when mm-hmm. it was time to take that next jump? How, how do you know? What advice do you have for people as it relates to career transitions and as it relates to your own career in particular? I think there's a couple of things. So I haven't always known sort of until it happens, in all honesty. At some point I've known, other point it's happened, and I've gone, I'm sure this is what I want to do. What I think it goes back to confidence. So I do, I'm one of those people that can look at a variety of job descriptions and figure out what I can do in the job description. So I have enough confidence that if I needed to pull on my legal skills right now, I could. Um, I have no illusions that I wouldn't have to work and build up my skills again, but I, I, I know that I can do that. The second thing is go with your gut. You know, if it feels right, I took a job offer once literally on 48 hours worth of notice. And I sat there over the weekend and I just said, my gut feels like this is the move I want to do. And so I think sometimes you just have to go on your gut. You know, you have to go with, you know, my father used to ask, is this your passion? Like, this is my passion. So I think it's, it's, I think it's, I think it's confidence in yourself to kind of weather the pivot and weather the changes and weather crazy things like moving countries on 48 hours worth of notice. But it's also the, um, it's also just the ability to be opportunistic and to think outside and to not say, well, I shouldn't because that's a pivot or I shouldn't because it's different. Because I firmly believe you can tell a story through all of your changes and pivots or your various, I was telling somebody yesterday, you may have the most varied CV, but I bet you can tell a story about why you've done every single one of those jobs and why you're here now. And she said, yes, I can. And that's what's important. Anything you would do differently as you look back? I don't think so. I mean, I think I do wonder sometimes why I didn't spend a little time working for governments now that I'm promoting women in governments. I did run some Senate campaigns and some political campaigns, so I know the political side. Um, I don't regret it, but I do think it would be interesting to go work in government and maybe doing that before this, because often when I was in Africa in a lot of my positions, I was talking to African governments about what they should do, Mm -hmm. and yet I'd actually never really worked in one. And so that might be one. It's not a regret, but it might be something that I think would be interesting to sort of add to the experience to make it make it stronger. We've talked a lot about your work. How can our listeners get involved or support the efforts that you have underway here? Absolutely. Well, the obvious sort of marketing you know, ploy is go to our website and see. I think part of how people can get involved is there's an advocacy piece, right? So there's, we have on our website and sort of talking and asking questions. Why aren't there more women in government? Why aren't they there? I think noticing, I think talking about your family and talking about your communities is really one way to sort of start changing that conversation. Because if if people start demanding that their city council or their attorney general or 
Department of Housing here looks like more the community. Sorry, I'm sorry. Excuse me. If they start demanding that agencies and government um, have more diverse workforces, then I think that conversation piece will start. If people want to sort of research and do data collection, give up the project a call because we want as many people as possible that say, I'm interested in this issue. And we want to say, let's take a look at it. I mean, one thing you can do is you can go and download all of this data and do your analysis, you know, and, and whether that's advocacy or a research piece, do your analysis and think about government. If, if people haven't thought about government before, think about government because I think government needs new people. And I don't think that people today do one career for 35 years. I think they go in and out of careers. And so I think the government can learn from the private sector. The private sector can learn from the government. Mm-hmm. That's great. You've given us great career advice um, this morning. But if you have one piece of advice or one life hack, something you live by, something that you share with other people, what what might that be? Be opportunistic. I mean, it sort of was what I said before, right? Be Be confident in yourself. And if you're confident, be opportunistic. You know, look outside and don't say, I can't do it because it doesn't make sense. If an opportunity presents it, personal or professional, and in your gut is like, I want to do do it, right? Do it because I think through those opportunities that you grab that didn't necess- that weren't planned is where you're going to learn the most about yourself, professionally or personally. And it's also where you're going to go, wow, I never thought of this. Maybe now I should be a journalist or maybe now I should get married where I never thought I wanted to get married before. That's great. Gwen, thank you. It's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. So lovely to see you. Nice to see you. Thank you so much, Laura. Thank you so much. You can learn more about Gwen from our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There will include show notes. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave a review and leave some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening.